Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. Today, Steve Asawa continues our series on the Apostle Paul's letters to the church at Corinth. Today, looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 17 through 40. And now, here's Steve. Good morning. Thanks, Dave and Becky and Hannah and Stan for just drawing our focus and attention to the Lord that opening. Last week, Phil Donaldson walked us through the first part of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Among other things, Phil highlighted the principles for a Christian marriage and noted what's important for all of us, regardless of marital status. Now, the customs and culture influencing the Corinthian church were very different from what the Jewish Christians had grown up with. For example, there were very different and opposing views on sex, marriage, and something very important to the Jewish people, circumcision. Paul was writing to show that aspects of both changed when people became believers. God wanted the people... God wanted the people to live such that the temporary things of the world wouldn't distract them from the most important thing and our lives, namely being devoted to God and following his commands. We're going to look at the second part of the chapter 7 this morning. But before we get into it, let's commit our time to prayer. Heavenly Father, I just continue to marvel that a good, that a great, perfect and holy God can love imperfect people such as ourselves. It's just so amazing. Thank you, Father, for the love that sent your son Jesus to the cross to pay the price for our sin. And we thank you for your word. And as we open it up this morning, Lord, I just pray for your guidance in bringing forward your word this morning. We pray that you would open our hearts and minds to what you would have us learn and apply. And may you be glorified. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. So I've pieced together a bit of an outline or a schematic uh, of this chapter, which helped me understand how the pieces fit together. And it's not a a really complete one, but just I think it's got some of the the key pieces in there. And you may find some other things as I go through it or as you go through the chapter that you want to add to this. So on the far left, we have the three main parts of the chapter, including instructions concerning married life, which Phil talked about last week. Concerning change in status, concerning the unmarried. As we look through our passage this morning, I'd like you to look for a few things. Look for some verses where Paul notes each person should remain in the situation they are in when God called them. And you can see that on this slide in that second column in the red and purple color. Look for references to the time that we have available. The time is short. The work is presently passing away. So if you look in the bottom center of your screen, you can see some, some of those examples in black. Look for which parts are commands from Paul and which parts are counsel or advice. And again, uh, in that second column, you can see the, the red and the purple color. Why does Paul say this stuff is important? If you look in the column on the right, uh, you can see in brown writing some of that, those pieces. 
And then just a couple of things to note are Paul's credentials or the authority by which he was qualified to speak on this topic. And again, on the far right, uh, just some of the spots where you might see it is just in the black writing. Now, in the first part of the chapter, Paul, sorry, in the first part of the chapter that Phil covered last week, Paul addressed the issue of sexual relations, marriage, separation, divorce, and marriages where one spouse was a believer and the other wasn't. Paul now turns his focus to the believer's status when they are called by God. Next slide, please. So reading from verse 17. Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Next slide. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you, although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who is free when he's called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person, as responsible to God, should remain in the situation they're in when God called them. Next slide, please. As each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. The essence of the first verse in this section is repeated three times over eight verses. I think Paul's trying to make his point crystal clear here, just in case the readers didn't catch it the first time. He also notes that this is the rule he laid down in all churches. Now, Greek culture dominated much of the philosophy and thinking in Corinth. Greek philosophers emphasized the importance of accepting one's situation in life. It was the gods determining your faith, and you need to accept it. I would suggest otherwise. We have a God who cares for us, who has given us the freedom to make our own decisions, and wants us to be in a personal relationship with himself. Next slide, please. Paul then uses circumcision as an example. This was something God had commanded his people to do, and was given for the Jewish people. It was a sign and seal of the covenant God had made with his people. It was also meant to be a sign of what the person felt on the inside. Some Jewish believers felt all Christians should be circumcised. What really counted was the outward sign of circumcision, but for the people to have their hearts right with God. The Greeks, however, were opposed to circumcision as they exercised in the nude, and so they would know and look down on those who were circumcised. Some Jews subjected themselves to a medical procedure to make it look as if they weren't circumcised. I can't imagine the social pressure they must have felt to seek out that kind of procedure. Paul notes, however, that both states are nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Then he repeats that each person should remain in the situation they are in when God called them. Then he uses another example. Those who are slaves when they became believers should not let that trouble them. Paul makes an exception to this rule by regarding 
sorry, Paul makes an exception to this rule regarding believers staying in their same situation and notes that it's okay to gain one's freedom if they can. I would suggest that there are other examples where an exception is made. For example, some of the people who believe in Jesus have been making money in inappropriate ways. Fishermen and a tax collector changed their vocation to become missionaries. And Paul himself went from being a Pharisee of Pharisees to become an apostle of Christ. Now, slaves in Paul's day were allowed to earn money. Some held positions of influence and wielded considerable political and financial clout. Slaves could save enough money to purchase their freedom, hence the word freed. Apparently, though, Roman law stipulated that the freed slaves still had some connections to the former owner's extended household, and there's still some obligations to the former owner. There were, however, obligations on the former owner to help this individual get established in their new life, and some of these people became quite wealthy. Paul notes that the one who was a slave when he, he or she became a believer is the Lord's freed person. On the other hand, those who were free when they were called, in other words, those who were free when they became believers, are Christ's doulos, his slave, or his servant. Paul writes that you, and that includes us, by the way, were bought at a price. Jesus paid the ultimate price for our freedom. He gave up his own life on the cross to pay for the price of the sin of the world. Not only those people in the first century AD, but for all people, including us. This is the gospel message. The God who created us sent his sinless son to die for us. We, in turn, need to repent of our sin, acknowledge that Jesus dealt with it on the cross, and trust in him as Savior and Lord. Lord means he gets first place in our lives. We do this, in effect, by being Christ doulas, or servant, someone who is devoted to serving Christ. His purposes and his interests take precedent over our interests. In effect, his purposes and his interests become our purposes and our interests. Paul then notes for the third time that each person should remain in the situation they're in when God called them. He prefaces it this time, though, as linking it to the believer's responsibility to God. I don't know if you remember your situation when you became a believer and put your trust in Jesus. Perhaps there are some who can't remember that time because they've always grown up believing in God and they've known the Lord from a very young age. I think the audience Paul is writing to would have consisted primarily of adults and some younger people whose situation in life was already determined. I think it's safe to say believers came from all walks of life, just as they do now. God reaches out to people regardless of gender, financial status, social status, vocation, or your family history. Perhaps you've heard the saying, you need to work for the cards you've been dealt. We know the one who holds the future, and we know he cares for us. He is, however, more concerned with the people than the cards that they're working with. The things of this world, things like money, the right job, popularity, are all nice, but they're all temporary pleasures. When we focus too much on these things, 
we focus too little on God. We're called to be salt and light to the world around us. I believe that having people in different situations is part of the way that we collectively, as a group, help spread the good news. Our reaction to situations we find ourselves in says something about our attitude to God. John Piper noted, God's more concerned with our sanctification, not our vocation. In other words, we're called to draw continually closer to God and in doing so, be more like him, regardless of our personal circumstances. As we sung this morning, Behold our God, nothing can compare. Come, let us adore him. In his letter to the Colossians, Paul wrote, And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And Jesus reminded the disciples not to worry about their lives, what they would eat, what they would drink, or the clothes they would wear. He said, For your heavenly Father knows you need such things. For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. In verse 17, Paul noted that the believers were to remain in the situation they were in when they become Christians, when they became Christians. And this was the rule he laid down in all churches. In this next part of the letter, he notes, I have no command from the Lord, but he gives a judgment as one but gives a judgment as one who is trustworthy. So he moves from a command to a counsel, from a rule to advice. At the end of the chapter, he ties off this part of the letter by saying he thinks that he too has the Spirit of God. You may remember that Paul was a Pharisee. He was very well studied, very well learned. His zeal for God led him to persecute the Christians. And then you may remember how the Lord reached out and spoke to him and how Paul became a believer, how he became a follower of Jesus on the road to Damascus. So certainly, whatever advice he has is worth listening to. Now, if you're looking for the Bible to be a detailed how-to book that tells us exactly what to do in every single situation, you're going to be disappointed. Yes, some things are spelled out very clearly, such as the commandment to love God with all of your heart, your mind, your soul strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Throughout this part, we've been reading about the importance of avoiding sexual immorality. Sometimes the Bible provides us with principles to guide our decisions. And sometimes it just should be obvious that something is just inappropriate. In this section, though, we see two choices that are both acceptable, although Paul says one is better than the other. Next slide, please. Now, about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give the judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you for this. 
Next slide, please. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of this world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this to you for your own good. Not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. Paul notes that it's good for a man to remain as he is because of the present crisis. He also notes that the time is short and that the world is, in its present form is passing away. Now we aren't sure what crisis Paul was referring to, but we do have an appreciation for his feeling on the time crunch. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul writes, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up with them, together with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. And he also writes, And you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. From 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, 17, and 5, 2. So how much time do we have? I'd suggest the clock started ticking when Jesus came to earth, and just as the people in Paul's day didn't know when the exact time, the exact time when they would see Jesus, neither do we know when we'll stand before him. I think many would agree that as we get older, and I realize that old is different depending on your age, time seems to go by faster and faster. It's like the cardboard roll that the toilet paper is wrapped on. The less paper it is, the faster it spins. None of us know how much time we have, and we need to make the most of it. I'm one of those people who's driven by deadlines. If it's too far away, I may pick at it here and there and try and start thinking about the task, but I don't usually get to it in earnest until the deadline really starts jumping out at me. This doesn't work very well when you don't know when you need to hand the report in, though. Any day could be our last. In verses 27-28, Paul reiterates some of the points he made early in his letter, and he notes that it's okay to marry, and people who marry aren't sinning. This goes back to some of the philosophers arguing that sex, even in marriage, was wrong. He also notes that people shouldn't seek to be freed or separated or divorced. Paul covered, or sorry, Phil covered these areas last week. Paul notes one reason for not marrying is that those who marry will face many troubles and then provides what seems to be some very strange advice. Those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they do not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. 
those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. Now, Paul's not saying it's okay for men to ignore their wives. In his letter to the Ephesians, we read, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. From Ephesians 5, 25 and 28. So the bar is set pretty high. Regardless of how much married couples love each other, though, their love for God should be even greater than their love for each other. And this may seem strange, but that's the order, and that's the way God intended it to be. Even marriage is temporary. Our relationship with God is eternal. Our concept of sorrow and happiness should also be considered in the light of eternity. This is not to discount the pain we go through when we go through various circumstances, such as the loss of a loved one. Jesus himself wept when his good friend Lazarus died. We are told that we will go through challenges as Christians, and we should rejoice when we suffer for the Lord. Sounds strange, given many, if not most, or even maybe all of us, prefer to avoid painful situations when when possible. Nor does it mean we can't find happiness in different things in this world. Life isn't, however, intended to be an all-out pursuit of smiles and happy feelings. God wants us to be holy, to be set apart for him, and doing things that honor him should make us happy. Similarly, we're called to be stewards of what God entrusted to us. Paul told those who use the things of this world not to be engrossed in them. Even though we may put our name on our possessions, they're really God's and should be used in a way to honor him. Jesus told a parable about a rich man who planned on building bigger barns to hold his crops. He said, And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. From Luke 12, 19-21. Then he notes how the unmarried person is concerned with the Lord's affairs, while the unmarried, sorry, while the, while the married person is concerned about pleasing their spouse, so their interests are divided. God instituted marriage. There's nothing wrong with it. In chapter 9, we see that many of the apostles were married. Paul's advice from verse 35 is this. For your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided attention to the Lord. At the risk of stating the obvious, many couples form great teams and serve the Lord together. Some single people serve wholeheartedly. Others choose not to serve the Lord. The more we appreciate who God is, the more we want to serve, whether married or single. In verse 36 we read, If anyone is worried that he might not be acting honorably toward the virgin he is engaged to, and if his passions are too strong and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He is not sinning. He should get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion but has control over his own will, and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So then, he who marries the virgin does right. But he who does not marry her does better. 
There are a couple of different interpretations of these verses. Many, like the New International Version, refer to the fiancé. Others, such as the New American Standard Bible, refer to the father allowing his daughter to be married. Marriages were usually arranged by the parents, and often they consulted with the children. Paul's point is relevant, though, whichever way you interpret it. Regardless of whether he's speaking to the fiancé or the father, the message is that if the marriage is felt to be the correct course of action, it's okay. What's better, though, is if there's a way to get out of the marriage contract that works for all involved. Next slide, please. He finishes off this part of the letter by saying, A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. In my judgment, she is happier if she stays as she is. And I think that I, too, have the Spirit of God. Again, Paul notes that being single is better in his judgment. We have an example of this in Luke's Gospel, where we read about the prophetess Anna, who was widowed after seven years of marriage and then lived for many decades in the temple, worshipping the Lord. When his parents brought him to the temple, Anna gave thanks to God and spoke about Jesus. But it was much more common, however, for widows to remarry. And apparently the Roman tax system was set up in such a way that it was more beneficial for young widows to remarry. And Paul closed off this part of his letter with the reminder of his credentials. Having the Spirit of God knows that his advice is inspired from above. So, in summary, in this chapter, Paul has touched on the topic of sexual relations, marriage, divorce, singleness, and staying in certain situations. Paul was an apostle of God and suggested to the people that he had some credentials so they would pay attention to his command and to his counsel. Paul noted that, contrary to what some believed, marriage was perfectly acceptable and it was the right decision for some. Being married, however, meant the couple would be concerned for each other and would be distracted from serving the Lord completely. It was better, therefore, for people to remain unmarried if appropriate, and this included widows. Paul established a rule that believers should remain in the situation they're in when they are called by the Lord. In other words, they are to stay in the same situation they're in when they became believers, and then he used circumcision and slavery as examples. We, like the people in Corinth, were bought with a price, that being Jesus' death on the cross for our sin. If there's anyone listening that has never come to this realization, I pray that this is the day you put your trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord. Regardless of our station in life, whether we're married, not married, rich, poor, young, older, etc., we're reminded to focus on the eternal one. Marriage, singleness, family, work, goods, friends, they're all blessings. And while important, though, they're all temporary. Our purpose is to be Christ's doulas, his servants, and put him first in all things. He wants to be sanctified. He, sorry, he wants us to be sanctified. In other words, he wants us to be drawn closer and be more like Jesus every day. We are to be holy, devoted, set apart for him. And as we sung this morning, he should be our king. Like the TV commercials say, but hurry, you need to act now. In this case, we need to act 
for an eternal reward, not for some temporary gadget that's going to break in short order. We don't know what time and what day we'll be asked to account for our thoughts and our actions, and we don't want to be caught procrastinating. If you're thinking, as I was when I was preparing this message, it's a tough message. Are there any temporary things that you or I am still clinging to instead of focusing on things of eternal value? As I noted earlier, the more we get to know God, the more we want to serve him. And may we all be found to be good and faithful servants who glorify our Heavenly Father. Let's close in prayer, shall we? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you again that you are not only the God of the mountains, but the God of the valleys. Not only the God of the sunshine, but also the God of the storm. Lord, we praise your holy name. We lift up our hearts to you this day. Lord, some of us listening to my voice today have strayed far from you and need to return. Oh, that there might be many who will come to the foot of the cross as your children, perhaps, or as never before having accepted. May this be a day of salvation, a day of restoration, and a day of renewal and repentance. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are sufficient. You did not come to make us happy. You came to make us holy. You did not come to make good men better. You came to make dead men alive. And so, Lord, we pray that as we separate today, our hearts may be full of praise and worship, for you alone are worthy of our lives and our love. For you gave your only son that he might die in our place. So anything we return to you is so small by comparison. And so, Lord, may our lives reflect your glory in a very real way even this day. Separate us with your peace, O Lord, and we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web at bfa.church where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you're in the Timmins area or drop us a line at info at bfa.church. Until next time.